Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Morning, everyone. Evolution.org Hardcore Podcast coming your way. Episode 124, Paul Delette. Steve Smee here in the Moapsa joining me. What's up, buddy? All good. Nice and cold, mate. Let's let us let we can warm the world up with our podcast. Let's do it, guys. So today we're going to do Paul Delette. Uh, maybe a lot of you out there in the United States may have not heard of him. He was born in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, is what um, I see here as his birth date. And, you know, the guy had amazing genetics. Uh, Mobster and I have t- were talking about it either. Uh, today, he's in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So he's definitely born and raised and living in, Can- in Canada. Um, interesting little tidbit about him. He played in the Canadian Football League. Um, and then he had such good genetics. And we've seen this with a few professional football players, American football players who have played football, then have went on to get into bodybuilding. You don't see that as often as you would think because they make so much money playing in the NFL that for them, it's, there's really no challenge to go into bodybuilding, but we see some guys, they have an appetite for it. They definitely have the genetics. So they'll go, they'll transition from football to bodybuilding and they'll do extremely well. Uh, compared to guys who are, say, going from baseball to bodybuilding, which you don't hear about, or basketball to bodybuilding, which you definitely don't hear about. So he definitely had those those amazing genetics. So let me kind of get through. He's basically known in the 90s. He was a big, big guy in the 90s. Um, NPC, North American Championships, he got second and first place in 91-92. Mr. Olympia, 93 he got sixth place. Then the next year in 94, he improved to fourth place. And then he got fifth place in 96, 97, and 99. And in the Arnold Classic, he also had top six showings. His highest was third place in 1996. And then a night of champions, he actually won that one back in 1999. So the guy was very, uh, he had a good run, um, especially in the mid to late 90s. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about him in this podcast and what he's, what he kind of his, his um, what he went through during the nineties. And he's been very open today about his steroid use, which we're going to get into. That's going to be fun talk. And he's also been open about his feelings toward bodybuilding from the nineties to now. So we're going to talk about all that. I'm going to bring mobster in here shortly, but first let's talk about his stats mobster listed stats, six foot two, 330 pounds in his offseason. Competition weight was in the high 200s, about 285. So he is uh, he yeah. is a big, big, big guy. Um, Very big guy. Yeah. So, yeah, Mom, so I'll bring you in on this. Um, you know, there isn't that much about his early childhood, but we can kind of, you know, get into, you know, um, get into what he's, um, you know, his transition from uh, childhood to uh, bodybuilding. I think in terms of his uh, physique, one of the things that stood out in my mind when we were doing the background research and obviously from 
the knowledge that I had of the guy already is he, he one year at the Olympia, they had the guys coming up uh, uh, three steps and they were standing in silhouette in the O of Olympia as a stage thing. And his silhouette was right up there. He, he, he literally looked like a sort of Frankenstein freakish physique. You knew it was Paul. You knew from his shape, you knew the, he didn't look like the other guys. And his genetics, which we'll get into, were stellar. They, they were just about as good as it's possible to, to be. Because when we talk about his training, his attitude to training, his, his posing, his competitive career and whatever else, it's almost as though this guy did not know what he was doing and yet still looked like, as you say, late to him. I was, I'm going to go as high as 300 on stage at one point. He was an absolute, he looked like a laboratory experiment. That's how freakish he was. And when, when, as I say, when we dig into the, the whys and whatever's of what made Paul Dillette Paul Dillette as a, as a physique star, it's almost just purely genetics that he ended up looking like the way that he did. He was an absolute monster. But there, there are, there's training stuff out there where you see him training, working with Charles Glass. And Charles has got him doing the stuff that he needs to do. But by reputation, Steve, it, it's almost like he didn't know, as me and you talked about in, in the pre-show, there's so many elements of what he was doing that should have made him the best, one of the best bodybuilders in the world, which he was, where it almost seems kind of he, need, he needed a guru like we have now. He needed someone to hold his hand because, honestly, if he looked the way that he did and he wasn't maximising his potential, you just go, what the hell? If you guys don't know him from the 90s, just Google image. This guy was front page material because he was just an out and out monster. We're not talking about tiny waist aesthetics here. It's just he's at a he's a and to put it crudely, he's a what the fuck kind of physique, Steve. Honestly, yeah, yeah, he is. He is definitely a beast, and he did. You know, we talked about this in the pre-show as well. Guys, back then in the nineties, they didn't have access to what we have access now. They didn't have access to. Mm coaches that you could just FaceTime with or Zoom with online. They didn't have access to the forums, the fitness forums. They didn't have access to all this information, podcasts like this. You know, in those times, they had to just go by word of mouth. And we call it today, we call it bro science. And that's what it is. In bro signs, if you ever talk to someone in the gym about steroids oh, yeah. or weight training or nutrition, you're going to hear a lot of bro signs come out of their mouth because they haven't basically got the access to what we have access to, Momster and I, and what you guys have access to since you're listening to this podcast. Obviously, you guys are seeking out information. So in Paul Dillette's camp, you know, he was in the same boat as some of these other guys um, where he just, you know, his peers – they just were clueless at that time. So we're going to kind of get into his steroid cycle. But, you know, we have to get into uh, what happened to him back in the 90s when he got a basically a huge scare. So, um, oh, yeah, and this was and this happened back in 1994. I'll let Mobster talk about this, but I just want to bring it up. Uh, this was at the Arnold Classic. And during in one of his poses, he froze on stage. And he had major problems from cramping from water retention and dehydration. So he was taking, uh, he was drying himself out. He was probably taking not only drying steroids, which we're going to talk about later, but he was also taking diuretics. And diuretics were a big thing back then for them to dry out. So I'll bring in Mobster. He can talk a little bit about this. Um, go ahead, Mobster. Tell us a little bit more about this story. 
Yeah, I listen to this. Basically, what's happened here, and, and, and there was a quick side thing that I actually recalled for another bodybuilder, which I think is what Paul's done. So not only is he coming in, in, in shape, he's one of his guys that 24, 48 hours, sometimes when you're competing as a bodybuilder, you, to, to, to use a British euphemism, your head's not right on, on properly. So you, you don't see what everybody else can see. Everybody else can see this vascular, muscular freak that's probably going to kick ass in the competition. What's well, looking back in the mirror of Paul is a, I need to dry it some more, I need to dry it some more. So he's coming depleted, he's coming thirsty, dehydrated. And for some particular reason, he's only taken a tiny, tiny bit more than he should have done as far as your diuretics is concerned. He's come on the stage, the lights are drying you out some more. He's got that kind of physique. And as, as Steve says, he's, he's got, the, it was described in the magazines and there were photographs online uh, videos at the time as a whole body cramp it was like a comedy steve they 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 picked him up the 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 guys on stage and they took him off and he looked like a cardboard cutter of a giant where someone's got an arm and someone's got a leg and he's not flop he's not on a stretcher he's kind of rigid i think i believe one of the descriptions that was given at the time in, in a post-competition interview he said that what really hurt being in that particular situation was that his spine the muscles around his spine kind of locked up so he's in a, a not only was he frozen solid, he was in quite a lot of pain. When they've got him off stage, uh, one of the stories that's come out of this in more recent times and was a, a headline on, on, on a particular, uh, 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 another podcast, was described as having a heart stoppage, vis-a-vis a heart attack, but described as a heart, his heart stopped backstage. And then obviously part of the problem when the guys did do overdo the diuretics, if you're not completely honest with the dosage and the hospital is not familiar with what bodybuilders are doing, they can make a, a right mess of it at the hospital. Fortunately for him, that he was rehydrated, potassium levels were brought back, sodium levels were brought back, and, and, and he was able to recover. I do believe, and this is just from memory, he actually came back at some point in the evening, if only to sit in the audience and not back on stage. But yeah, it, it, for the audience, for people at the time, it was a hell of a shock. Looked really, really bad. When you had around the same time, Steve, as you'll know, um, Andreas, Andreas Munzer and, and a couple of others uh, where they died, they didn't, this was, you know, this was going to be the third one of around the same time. And, you know, bodybuilding was going to struggle anyway. But when you can have potentially have three deaths on stage or three deaths because of diuretic use, et cetera, et cetera. That's why we know that the diuretic tests were brought in at the same time. And Paul was, again, freak of nature, last minute mistake, whole body cramp. That's just not a situation that bodybuilder wants or needs as far as the publicity is concerned. And it's just trying to do too much to bring in that extra, extra condition. I've already said, I can't see this guy has ever been a Mr. Olympia because he just lacked that little bit of a polish, that little bit of a shape that the Mr. Olympia has to have. So really is, is, is doing an, an unnecessary risk to get that last little bit out. He was winning competitions. He was doing okay overseas in certain events, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't really need to win the Mr. Olympia. In fact, in a recent interview, which I watched as part of the Backshow research, financially, in terms of sponsorship, I think it was, it was said he was at one point he was with MuscleTech and they actually was giving him six figures to come back and compete. So. As far as uh, supplement companies and contracts were concerned, he was doing well anyway. So he didn't really need to win the Mr. Olympia. He didn't really need to take these risks. So it's that kind of 
trying to do the last thing at the last minute. As Steve said, it's that lack of information. The, the research that we do for the show shows really that he was getting like 70s and 80s information for a 90s bodybuilder. He wasn't, there wasn't, he wasn't because of his genetics getting him so far, he wasn't doing the right thing. And when you're not doing the right thing with diuretics, guys, you're put, when you're already ripped and dry and dehydrated, the risk for a bodybuilder like him could have been death. That's, that's how serious this stuff could have been, as it was a heart stoppage and spinal muscular craziness on stage and being taken off. Like, how embarrassing, never mind if he gust. So it's just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff and, and unnecessary, not really, really needed. When we give you advice on, on, the, on the forums and on this podcast or whatever else, we want you on stage. We want you ripped and dry and in condition. We want what you want. We do not want you carried off on a stretcher. We do not want you ended up in, in ER. We want you in the best condition. We want you on stage kicking ass and taking titles and trophies and bringing our medals. Uh, Paul Dillette was right up the top of the physique at that time and still making these kind of mistakes. So that's, that, that's uh, not the way that you need to learn this kind of stuff, guys. Paul, uh, Steve. Yeah. So, you know, Paul was, has been very open about his, you know, his steroid use over time. So, you know, we're going to get into that also. Another thing he's been open about in interviews um, is the way that bodybuilding has changed from the 90s till now. And I think it was very interesting what he was saying. And this is something that, you know, we can debate, you know, for many, many podcasts. But um, what he basically was saying that back in the 90s, because they didn't have the access that every all of you have today, like these bodybuilders now they're on social media. You know, you follow yeah. them on social media. You, If you want to see the Mr. Olympia, you pull up a YouTube video. If you want to see them working out, you pull up a YouTube video. Back in those days, if you wanted to see them work out, you had to go to the gym they were working out to watch them. If yeah. you wanted to see them compete, you had to go to the competition to watch them. It's not like it is today where people tape it and then put it on social media and boom, you can see the next day. Like you can pull minutes up the... Later, Mr. Minutes later. Yeah. Minutes Live. You put, live exactly they stream yeah. it live and all that stuff so you have to kind of understand that some of you younger guys it's hard for you guys to understand that because you grew up <laughs> in a completely different time but yeah like when mobster and i were growing up i can remember like uh, if i missed the football game okay i had an option i could either record it with my vcr or i'd have the wait, well, wait till wait, the next day the i'd have to wait to watch it on ESPN yeah. the next day. Free days. Free days. There was no DVR. So I had to actually <laughs> watch it with my own eyes or yeah. I'd miss it. And there wasn't a way I could pull up YouTube or pull up the NFL, you know, dot com and look at the highlights. Yeah. That didn't exist. So bodybuilding <laughs> was even worse. So he talks about back in the 90s, they used to worship yeah. these guys. Like yes. his underwear, you know, he'd throw it yeah. into the crowd and people would be like, ah, they go crazy. Yeah. yeah. To see Pay for shirts. Now it's, sitting, yep. sit, sorry, Steve, sitting at a seminar, and I told this Steve off air, I said, sitting at a seminar, he says he was talking about the money that he made and how he could have made a certain amount of money doing the seminars three times a week when he was at his peak and, you know, 150 seminars a year and all this kind of stuff. And the story I told Steve was he says he was at one seminar, he's done a bit of training for the crowd and a bit of posing, and he's got a sweaty T-shirt on. And someone says, can I, can I buy your sweaty T-shirt? That's the way that Paul describes it. He says, so he says a guy offered him a hundred dollars, and immediately one of the other guys in the crowd says, "I'll give you hundred and fifty dollars." They just literally the shirt off his back, 
So yeah, it was that kind of situation. I'm old enough and, 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 and been older than Steve, where you know, I would go to maybe two, three seminars a year, and we had to get these guys to come over from the States. It wasn't always properly advertised. It might be advertised in my gym, but there would be other gyms I wouldn't even know that they were going to. I'm waiting for these guys to turn up, sometimes in great competition condition, sometimes in good off-season condition, but sometimes not. And in your paying what seemed like a decent amount of money, the magazines you'd wait a month for, some, one of the descriptions just yesterday watching another video completely is you can have a response on Instagram from a professional Mr. Universe or Mr. Olympia or wherever else in minutes. We can watch the live podcast stuff now. So the, the way that this stuff was done was completely different. One of the things he said, to change the subject a little bit, Steve, is he, he, he's saying, and he's doing the whole thing of, everybody says he's got rose-tinted spectacles when it comes to the past. He says that 90s bodybuilding isn't, sorry, was the peak. And bodybuilding isn't what it is. In fact, he's gone so far, Steve, as to say he thinks bodybuilding is dying. Now, I'd actually disagree with this because the reason he's made that statement is A, the rose-tinted spectacles I just referred to, and the second is that he's created a federation of his own is the WBFF, the World Beauty, Fitness and Fashion Federation. And essentially, he's a businessman. And from what I can work out, he's quite a good businessman. So his idea with the federation is created, and as we've actually got one over here in the UK based in Ireland, which is very similar. It's the idea is that these people come in, they've got a, 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 a vein on their arm, they've got a good set of abs, but they're also model worthy. And so in terms of what's more attractive to the mass market, it's not going to be a Paul Dillette type physique or a Dorian Yates type physique. It's going to be someone who looks good, is in shape. And in terms of the show that he's putting on, it's quite the it's quite dramatic. There's, you know, different kinds of music. The costumes are kind of crazy. Sometimes the light is very, very good, et cetera, et cetera. But as I said in the pre-show to Steve, that sounds to me like the Miss Universe. So what's he done? Has he created a new bodybuilding federation? Or has he just created a vascular, in-shape Miss Universe, which is what I think he's done. So from a business point of view, it makes sense for him to turn around and say that bodybuilding is dead because he wants to get more bums on his seats. He wants to attract more sponsors. Now, he's been running this federation up in Canada for a few years now, and they do okay. It certainly does all the let's checkbook well. But in terms of it being something that's going to take over bodybuilding, that hasn't happened. And I'm old enough with the history of the bodybuilding sport from the 1950s onwards and my own particular focus from 1980 onwards. Sometimes people come in, they try to reinvent the wheel, but for some reason, we like the freaks. So that's why there's more classes in bodybuilding and Paul Dillette's right on that point, but he hasn't quite taken over the world with his small Canadian federation that's got, you know, if the, his people are getting modeling contracts, we're not hearing their names in the media. We're not hearing of them becoming famous. So if they're paying their $500 and they can wear feathers on stage, good luck to them. If they're happy and if Paul's happy, good for them. <laughs> but they haven't kicked bodybuilding to the curb and bodybuilding hasn't died yet. So guys, if you want to get hench, if you want to have muscle, you're still good to go. Paul's got his opinion, I've got mine. I think we can agree with the, the, what's happened just recently and the $400,000 that the Mr. Olympia is getting as a winner that is not handing out $400,000 uh, prizes his federation on his competitions but you know yeah it, it is what it is people people yep. want to do that they can do that if they want to do bodybuilding they can do bodybuilding and if you guys want to Steve. check out um his instagram page if you go to paul delette's instagram page uh wbff shows um he's got pictures of 
some, you know, they're beautiful women, uh, mostly females, it seems. Uh, and the guys that he has are ripped to the bone on uh, his yeah. Instagram. So, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. they're There's uh, a few guys. They're out of our league, mobster. The, the women are out of our league. So don't. don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're out of my league now. <laughs> yeah, we're both. We're both. Uh, I'm too you don't old. have the looks for that. Maybe my old podcast. Yeah, anymore. Host, my old podcast host Trevor. Um, would, that would even we're be out of his famous. league. Even out of his league. So for us, a couple ugly, ugly guys yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. If he wasn't so, promoted, he'd get no action. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. So let's kind of get into before we get into the steroid cycle. Why don't we do um, mobster talk about? I'm going to talk about his nutrition a little bit. You can get into his workouts because his workouts were interesting. Um, I'll do the workouts for sure for that. Yeah. yeah. So let me get into his nutrition. So um, Paul he talks about his nutrition. He likes to keep it simple for a guy with his genetics. Mm. Um, he doesn't have to complicate things. Um, he talks about nothing fancy. The typical rice, chicken. Uh, a few steaks here and there. He he likes to drink a lot of shakes. Um, you know that's that's perfect for someone on the go. He can kind of get in all his stuff on there. He likes he talks about fish oil. He talks about fat burns. He talks about taking multivitamins. He talks about his diet being extremely stri- strict, especially in his competition prep phase. And then we see all with all these guys, they're a lot bigger in the off season. Their diet isn't as strict. Him being a Canadian, Canadians tend to eat a little healthier than Americans, not vastly healthier, like you no. guys in, in Europe, Mobster, but they do eat Maybe. generally healthier. So for him, you know, a cheat meal wouldn't be, you know, a cheat meal for an American. I'll put it that way. So it's not like he's going getting Big Macs as a cheat meal, but, you know, for him, I'm sure, you know, he had some cheat meals here and there, maybe some ice cream, maybe some cake or something like that here and there, but nothing too much. But he talks about, you know, chicken, eggs, fish, steak. Those are his staple protein sources. Not a sh- big shocker, you know, with that. It's not that complicated, guys. Um, as long as you don't put trash in your body leading up to the competition, you're going to come in shredded with these types of genetics and with all the stuff that he's on. So mobster, very, very important workouts. You're not going to build muscle without working out. No, Tell us a little no, bit no. about his workouts. Uh, Cause he's open about this as well. Yeah. So, so of my time again, and you, the, these things are on YouTube because you can check them out. He was in these battle for the Olympia type videos that uh, Mitsu was putting out back in the day. Mitsu Akabi, I believe his name is MOC videos. And you can see Paul training. He was described by a lot of critics as being a kind of lazy trainer. And and, and when you watch him, you, you, you know, I, I, I like the guys lifting heavy weights. I mean, that's my strength background. So if the guy's doing 180 pound dumbbells, that's, you know, that, that'll do me. But Paul wasn't that kind of person at all. And in fact, the argument goes again, his genetics were so damn good. His response to training was so damn good that he could be kind of sloppy. So I believe there's videos on there. I think he goes up to 50 pound dumbbells. And you think, oh, so this guy's 285 pounds, 290 pounds on stage, 330 pounds in the off-season. You kind of expect him to be doing four and 500-pound benches. He's using 30, 40, 50-pound dumbbells for some of his exercises. And even the one I mentioned earlier on when he's training with Charles Glass, who was like the coach of the time, and even now is still highly rated. He's not, not doing what you see other bodybuilders at that time doing. He's not down in the cellar in a basement gym like Dorian. He's not with Flex and, and Chris and, and doing 450-pound benches, but he still looks a monster. So he was described, as I say, as a bit of a lazy trainer. His response to training was 
on par with just about no one else's in terms of what he was able to do with the lightweights he was using. However, there is an occasional reference where the guys say on a rare occasion that he pushed push himself, on a rare occasion, for whatever reason, whether he was on the right dose of testosterone when someone was kicking his ass or whatever else, he was a moderately strong guy. But his response to training was so damn good, Steve, that 30 pound numbers, 40 pound, 50 pound numbers was enough for him to be sitting there at 300 pounds with 22 inch arms, vascular as hell, and looking like something from the Black Lagoon. He's just an absolute monster. He probably having what from old school bodybuilding, the Sergio Olivia uh, response to training that you could do practically five hour workouts and still look the way that he did. You could do two or 300 reps and still look the way he did. He could use 30 pound dumbbells when everybody else was using 100 pound dumbbells and still look the way that he did. So it was, he was almost, in spite of his training, an absolute freak, an absolute monster and whatever else. It was kind of crazy in that particular way. And it's one of those things sometimes that the guys with those kind of genetics don't appreciate. When I, I'm reading yesterday an old bodybuilder magazine and Sergio Olivia pretty much for most of his life had a 28 inch waist, regardless of his size, his shape, etc. Even he in the article talks about how I'm unusual. I think Paul's only now uh, coming out of bodybuilding and, and moving on into different directions, realizes and appreciates just how rare his kind of genetics is and how his ability to respond to that kind of situation and, and, and have the look that he had uh, was as, as good as it was. Steve? All right, so let's get into his third cycle. So in some interviews, he did an interview with Tom Platts, which uh, Mobster and I were, you know, read yeah. through. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, one of the cycles he talks about was using 400 milligrams of DECA per week with 400 gram, uh, milligrams of testosterone a week with one anadrol a day. That one anadrol would come out to 50 milligrams because that's why anadrol typically comes with um, a 50 milligram tab. So what was interesting about that is that he that's like a cycle for like, that's a second cycle or third cycle for most gym rats. And the yeah. fact that he's saying that's yeah, what yeah, he yeah. ran, you know, that's, that yeah. seems really, really low. So that was interesting that, that I found. Another thing that he talks about too is Prima Bowl. And he loved Prima Bowl. And Mobster and I were talking about it in the pre-show. If you actually look at his, his steroids that he liked, Deca, Prima Bowl, and these are steroids from the seventies. These are steroid cycles from the seventies. Guys now, they don't really use... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Primo yeah, yeah. as as a base in their cycle, but they did back in those days because Primo Bolin, you know, Arnold was legendary with Primo Bolin. He used to take one cc of Primo Bolin, which is 100 milligrams, and back then they got pharmacy grade Primo Bolin. They could get that, access that. He didn't inject that every day, so it came out to about 700 milligrams a week of Primo Bolin, and that's why he would run Primo Bolin. It's a mild steroid. It's a DHT derivative, so it does not aromatize into estrogen. It's one that you would take to kind of build a nice physique. It's not one that you would take like trend that's going to blow you up. So I thought that was interesting that his steroid use kind of mimics what the guys in the 70s and the early 80s were using. Not yeah. He wasn't, he was kind of old school when his steroid cycles in the 90s versus now the way guys use steroids which is way way more than that so i thought that was interesting um and he talks about it openly he says that he 
would, uh, he said, he would mix DECA with Primobolin, which is a pure anabolic at the same time. So he liked doing the mixing, the whole DECA, Primobolin, which is a good mix, because that DECA um, is a mild steroid, but it gives you more appetite, better mood. It'll give you some nice gains in the gym. And the Primobolin is a DHT derivative. So DECA and Primobolin as a stack are perfect together. Um, and that's why guys in the 70s would use that stack and it would work out really, really good because the DHN from the DECA and the DHT from a Primobolin, it's like peanut butter and jelly. It goes together really, really good. So he talks about um, he talks about um, using Primobolin five to 600 milligrams of that a week in his interview. Um, but then he talks about, you know, how he used growth hormone as well. So he would say about 10 to 12 weeks, he started grow using growth hormone with that cycle. And he says that he would, and in here, he says he, he would start, he would start at 12 weeks out of his competition. And the primo and the HGH was really good because HGH gave him some growth and it also boosts his IGF-1 in, especially in the off season to help him grow. And then the HGH is also really good for fat loss as well. So he started really pushing the, the HGH, I think more in the mid to late nineties, he started pushing the HGH and maybe some insulin with it. So one of the steroid cycles that, you know, we saw, we see on an evolutionary forum kind of stacks those together because when you stack the HGH and the insulin pre-meal, the HGH will rise your, cause a rise to your blood sugar. Then the insulin comes in and drops your blood sugar back down, gives you a nice partitioning effect so that he can eat his protein and that stuff gets uh, shuttled into the muscle. So I think what happened is in the early 90s, he was sticking to more the DECA Primo route. Then as the 90s went on, he started talking to people. And I think he got yes. more aggressive as the 90s yeah. went on. Because if you see his yeah, physique yeah. from the early 90s to late 90s, it started growing. So what I, you know, what we could speculate he did was a gram of test. 100 milligrams a day of the Winstrol. The Winstrol is going to dry you out. 120 milligrams of the maybe Anovar, that's going to dry you out. That's going to give you some nice pumps there, uh, make you nice and vascular. And then the Primo, he loved Primo. I, I don't see him getting away from the Primo monster. I still think that he was messing yeah. around with the Primo even in the late 90s, but he was running a lot more of it. I could see him running one, one and a half grams of Primo even uh, a week just to get an edge on his competition, trying to keep up with his competition. And I also see him, it wouldn't surprise me as well as he, if he messed around with DECA, because I think guys, you know, with DECA, they viewed DECA back then as a great steroid. Today, guys are like, oh my God, I don't want to run DECA. I don't want to get DECA dick. I don't want to run DECA. I don't want to blow it up. I don't want to run DECA. I want uh, to get a nice physique, you know, is a, is a very misunderstood steroid. And the reason guys today screw up with DECA is they're not doing what he did. They're not stacking a DHT derivative with it. They're running too much testosterone with it today and they're bloating up. And that's what happens when you run tons of testosterone with DECA, you blow, you bloat up and you get a crazy appetite. So back then they knew how to stack these steroids, oddly enough, better than a lot of guys know today. And he knew what he was doing just based on that bro size, just based on that word of mouth, just based on talking to other guys and, and trial and error. He knew what to run. I also think diuretics were a big part of his game. We know that from his incident. I don't see him getting away from it because even in that incident, 
look at how he looked. And if it's going to help him look a certain way on stage, I don't see him getting away with it. I see him learning from his mistake. I see him being more careful with it, but I don't see him necessarily getting away from it, especially considering, you know, he nailed some of these competitions closer to 99 and 2000 as we got into the 2000s. So that's, that's my uh, speculation on his cycle. I think he was more aggressive early on mobster. Deca, Prima Bowen, very conservative, maybe an anadrol here or there, um, you know, just to give the, the cycle a kick. But then as the 90s went on, I think he got to have to keep up with his competition. He realized, you know what, I'm not going to I'm not going to place in the top three, the, the top five of these competitions anymore unless I up my game. I got to add in a lot of HGH, which is what he talks about in the interview. Yeah. I got to add in a little insulin as well to get that partitioning effect. It's got to happen. So, Mobster, I'm going to bring you in here. What do you think? Um, what do you think about all this? What do you think he ran his steroid stack look like? So, I, I, one of the things that you said in, in, in your point was that uh, it was an Arnold type of steroid cycle. It really was. In fact, my thinking, as soon as you said it was, it looked like a cycle that Arnold had done with a little bit more of everything on the cycle. So, literally, when you said the test and the Deca and a Primo, it was like that's the sort of cycle we were discussing in previous podcasts about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is it's always done is added 100 to 200 milligrams to the doses, and that's very much what it looked like right there at the beginning. 100. In fact, if you look at his physique, the the HGH, he had that that look, especially at the time, slightly less so now, with the thickened brow. The idea that the, the I think it's the angromorphy where the guys have too much growth hormone for all the time, and you end up with this kind of thick brow kind of Frankenstein kind of look to your face. And if you look at uh, Paul in shape back in the 90s, that's how he looked. So 100% agreeing with that stuff. And I also agree again, again, I think Steve's got on point here, in terms of the changes to his physique and what was required, he started out, well, literally, there, there were some books. We were talking about Dan Duquesne and a few others. So that's where he's getting his information from in the early 90s, late, late, early 90s. He's taken a template of the physique steroid cycles that was being used in the 70s and 80s and he's up the doses and that's all he's done and then as he's progressed as he looks like he's going to do well as he's winning this competition or placing high in that competition he's starting to realize that to step up his game and he's gone to california at this point he's training with the guys that are around him with professional bodybuilders they're probably having you know Gone over, gone over to the fire station and sat down and, and had a, a bodybuilder special and talked about what's going on. The other thing, Steve, was, and I mentioned it in a pre-show, he lived with, I believe it was for up to two years, it might have been slightly less, Lee Priest. And Lee Priest has discussed at length that he, both himself specifically and Paul, as his uh, uh, rent buddy, his, 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 his house sharer, flat sharer, they never used big amounts compared to some. So when he was with um, Lee, I think Lee has actually stated this, and again, as you said, quite openly, that you know they were they were using the same steroids. Lee Priest at five foot five, two hundred and twenty pound in his absolute best condition on stage, and he's living with a freak of freaks, Paul, three hundred pounds to eight, late to late two nineties, two eighties on stage, and they were both doing two three hundred milligrams in this and two hundred milligrams in that. But what was happening, and I agree 100%, they were starting to have these conversations with other people. And again, possibly towards the end of his career, with his crazy, crazy genetics, starting to have conversations with people like Chris Cormier, Flex Flex, uh, uh, Wheeler, and others at Golds where he was training, 
and, and finding out their secrets, finding out into get shape. I mean, again, as per right at the beginning of the podcast, when we talk about how he made the mistake with the diuretics, you don't need to learn that lesson more than once. You don't need to make that kind of crazy near-death experience more than once. So I think it's one of those things when you go, listen, this has got me so far and I've got his crazy genetics, but I need to up my game. And if I, but in, in this day and age, and it was just, just starting at the very end of his career, he needed to go sit down with not someone who knew anabolics and all the stuff that needs to get you into shape on, on stage way, way better than him. And in fact, this is actually kind of true, Steve, of, of a lot of top professional bodybuilders with one or two exceptions. Most of them, reason why they use gurus and that stuff, they're specifically competition gurus, is because the guru has actually sat down, if they're a good guru, and studied all the aerogenic, all the anabolics, all the stuff that gets you in the condition. The bodybuilder's just got great genetics that he can go kick ass in the gym. Tell me what to eat, tell me how to train, tell me what drugs to take. And I think Paul was there. He comes across as an intelligent businessman, but I think at the time, I'm going to be brutal. I don't think he knew what he was doing. I, I think he kept it real, real, real simple. And it's only, as you said, towards the end of his career that he learned what worked, what worked for him specifically, and how he could manipulate these things better. Something that I, I, I've never been keen on, but I know Steve knows a bit about this, with the guys with the kickstarters and the finishers and changing mid-cycle as you're getting closer to a competition, what you keep in, what you take out, and so on. I don't think Paul knew any of that till very, very late in his career. Steve? Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring that up because I was going to bring up, he talks about in the interview, he talks about water-based steroids. So what he talks about mm. is he'll stop the oil-based steroids three weeks out of his competition, and he'll switch to water-based steroids. And the reason he did that, maybe he didn't know why through trial and error, but the reason no, he does exactly. that is it makes sense because he would use the suspension. He used the Winstrel Depot. These are water-based steroids. They're in and out of your body yeah. quick. So it gives you that flexibility yeah. of, you know, I'm switching things out in and out. They're in and out of my body. So if something it's trial and error on the spot. So if it's something's not working, I look in the mirror, I yes. flex, something's not working. I can switch it out, switch something else in. It gives you that flexibility. But if you're an oil-based long injectables, you can't have that flexibility. It's too long in the system. It's too long. Primo yeah. Bolin has an end-date ester. It's in your system 11, 12 days. Half-life is, is the half-life, yeah, which means that it's going to be in your system times five. So you just take a half-life of a steroid, multiply it times five. So if it's 10, 11 days, that means that Primo is going to be in your system 50 days. What happens, Mobster, if he gets Primo and it's not really Primo? It's something else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What if it's just testosterone that he's injecting? That will screw mm. him up in competition. So this is why he realized, you know what? I got to make sure that in the 90s were the era, Mobster. I'm, um, I'm pretty sure you can confirm this because you're over in Britain where steroids are legal to buy, but I'm sure you can confirm this, that the nineties were the era where guys went from using pharmacy grade gear. They switched more to underground. Hey, my buddy in the gym has steroids for me to buy type of gear because that's oh, very what happened. So. Yeah, yeah, after yeah, the late eighties. I know in the United States in the late eighties, they, you know, steroids really got hammered. So basically a lot of this pharmacy grade gear they'd stop producing it and they stopped you couldn't get it so i'm sure you can confirm that so it makes sense I, I can, it, that I can it is this, yeah 
I can give you a specific example here, Steve, that one of the guys that I had actually got uh, gear off way, way back in the day, as you say, uh, late 90s for me, uh, and he'd been around for a bit of time, but they were getting the stuff in from uh, Russia and Pakistan. We were buying, I think it was the Iraqi or Iranian uh, test infinite, uh, the stuff that was coming in from Pakistan or wherever else, and this was pharmaceutical, and it was being smuggled from from those countries in, into the UK. Actually, it was being brought in through customs, and a specific story for that. And they were just paying the VAT, the tax at the customs desk, and being brought into the country because of the way the laws in this country work. There was no limit to what you could bring in. So the custom officer gets all excited, and the guy that's got his suitcase full of drugs just say, "How much do I need to pay on the VAT, the value-added tax?" So it would be brought, you know, smuggled into the border and then just brought over to the border quite legally. And this was pharmaceutical quality product. It was Indian or, or Pakistani or Russian, but it was or, or Iranian, but it was pharmaceutical. Now, of course, as you say quite properly, there's, there are labs here in the UK that are creating steroids. But, you know, it's, it's, it's swings and roundabouts. I think there's a lot of guys that argue about the idea of pharmaceutical versus UGL. UGL can, of course, be just as good as pharmaceutical in the right circumstances. But as Steve says, when you got pharmaceutical products, you knew that what you had was what it said on the label, 100%. Whereas with UGL, guys, because quite often start really well and then cut corners and then put cheaper ingredients and different steroids into the bottles and so on and so forth. So it's that kind of situation. Price-wise, I remember paying... Uh, at that particular time when I was just starting to get into steroids, I wanted to do everything properly. So I paid a small premium for essentially getting smuggled in, uh, although legally at the border, uh, pharmaceutical products. And it'd be, if, if a bottle over here was £30, then you were paying £35 or £40. So it was worth the extra 5 or £10. So the extra, as I say, 10 to 15 bucks extra to know that what you were getting was that particular way. So yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff again. I believe from uh, Paul Dillette, there is some reference to say that he was getting pharmaceutical and indeed he would have been at the end of the time when the guys could leave the gym and go down and see a local doctor in and around uh, Venice Beach. That was just about finishing at the end of the time when he started to finish the end of his career. So the guys were getting checked and they were able to buy over the counter on prescription pharmaceutical steroids. It only towards the end of Paul's time that you talk this hearing about guys making up still, you know, roars in their home or selling drugs out of the back of cars and that kind of stuff. It went on around that time, but you know, when you're at Paul's level, you're hooked up. Here's the guy to go and see, here's his number, tell him I sent you, get your bloods done. And quite often, there's another thing I heard, there's rumor around the same time, Steve, was that there were certain doctors that were bodybuilding fans. So they would hook you up just to see a crazier physique on stage because that's what they liked. So these guys would send you stuff. That, that doesn't happen anymore because the FDA and DEA are not very keen on those kind of things. And for some reason, you could lose your license. But it's like, back give me, in the day, get, can you give me a strip show and I'll hook you up with a nice, I'll write you. I mean, there was, a, there was a combination of factors at the time. So there was the, the muscle worship stuff, but these were for middle ranking guys. You go, you know, take your shirt off and show us your chest and I'll give you Supremo. That wasn't for the top guys. The top guys would literally be, if you pay this guy a hundred bucks over and above, you go down, he'll, he'll say your testosterone's low and he'll write you out a prescription. And as I said, the other thing was literally, if, if you're a Jay Cutler or a Paul Dillett, or if you're a, a, a very, it's kind of crazy, right? You get to 
Be the Mr. Olympia Bravely is great genetics. There's a crazy work ethic by being a businessman and a bodybuilder, by doing all the things that needs to be done. And then the higher up you go, the more likely they are to give you good drugs. And that's very much at that time where it was, you'd hear these crazy rumors about what was going on. One of the rumors around Dorian Yates, for example, was that people thought that he was, uh, he would go to bed hooked up to an IV with the amino acids and the drug going into his system overnight, which was just stupid. It, 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 literally that stuff would have to be specifically made for him and the, the, the machine would have to know exactly what he needed. It was an, an idea that sounded great, but in reality it was cobblers. He was doing the same amount of drugs as everybody else, same drugs as everybody else. The only thing is that you're, you're more likely to get at that level offered pharmaceutical uh, whether it's the right doctor or whatever. There's, there's still stuff out there. I think we had on the forum the other day, Steve, that, that, that story that one of the members put up about one of the suppliers on some forum being hooked up with some drug cartel in South America. And, you know, if you didn't, if you, if, if you, if you gave his name to the police, the drug cartel was going to come down and kick your ass and do very, very naughty things to you, your mum and your sisters and whatever. So it's just kind of crazy stuff. Reality of the situation is that when you get to the Miss U Olympia level, there are fans that want you to kick up. A big Rami in the Middle East, I, I, I'd be probably falling over people offering him peptides or whatever right now because they'll want him to go back and kick ass. I mean, one of the things from that time, Steve, especially um, certain countries with uh, communist Russia and again, to some degree, the Middle East, is that you're, you can be government sponsored. I mean, this is how the Russian athletes were doing well in the Olympics. So the higher up you are, to want of a, want of a better phrase, the better drugs you get. Uh, but I think, believe it, I say around that time in California, they were still able to hook up with a doctor and get prescriptions, and it would be pharmaceutical over the counter stuff, whether it's a compounding pharmacy or, or, or normal up the street pharmacy. After a while, of course, the, the FDA, the police, drug enforcement, everybody else realizes that there's these bodybuilders going to this one doctor in California, remember, getting the drugs in and going back to the gym and working out and doing whatever. That doesn't happen for very long. And, eventually that kind of thing gets people arrested and charged and whatever else. And there was stuff like that going on at the time as well. I think Dan Duquesne wrote about this, the bust at the section down there and how doctors were losing their licenses and this kind of thing. So it doesn't last forever. But if there's a choice between pharmaceutical and, and UGL, people are gonna people bite the hand off the person that's gonna offer you pharmaceutical. And I think at that time, Paul would have been one of those guys getting that kind of level of drugs and quality of products and whatever else. As we say, the issue wasn't what drugs he was using, the issue was his knack of knowledge at the beginning of his professional career versus his knowledge improving as the information become more available. You know, Steve, Steve and I, they had books that you had to read. And that was, and even now, you and I, Steve, we know what's in those books. And we kind of laugh at some of the stuff that they were trying. And even then they were experimenting. Dan was experimenting with people, with some of the athletes he had. Fortunately for us, we've learned from those books. We learned from that information. We've learned from those mistakes. And of course, we understand with the blood tests and stuff like that, individual variation of what's going to be done. Pretty much the advice is always going to come down to, and if a freak of Stein like Paul can do it, it's going to come down to this. Start low, work your way up. If you can turn into a 300-pound onstage monster like Paul Dillette with the doses that he was doing, which is a second or third cycle for a lot of guys now, then that's a understanding. You can become a monster with low dose, if you've got genetics, but equally you don't, it'd be on grams and grams and grams. He was using a 70s steroid cycle to become a 90s bodybuilder 
and look what he looked like. I swear to God, guys, go online and look what he looked like. It was an absolute, and Lee Priest, Lee Priest at five foot five had probably the best arms, arguably the best arms of all time, but certainly the best arms of his time at five foot five and 220 pounds on stage using next to nothing. I think even I think Lee Priest is one of the few bodybuilders that's probably taken less than me because I don't use much at all. So it's entirely possible to end up being an absolutely amazing bodybuilder with next to no drugs. And these guys are good examples. Some of you will require more informed dosages. Some of you need to vary. Some of you need to do what Steve said, which is use short acting instead of long acting, especially pre-competition. So yeah, there's, there's a thing to learn from today, Steve. The idea of taking out the oils and the long acting and putting in the shorter acting stuff and making sure that you're clear of the long acting, that's for competitive bodybuilders to have that last minute manipulation. What you don't want to do is play around with diuretics in the last 24 hours pre-show, I believe, if one story is to be, to be believed in hours before going on stage. That, no, 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 no. Some, yeah. Steve, you know better than I do. Some diuretics take, I think it's a half-life of one, isn't it? 11 or 12 hours. So you're dehydrated on stage, having taken a diuretic that's still in your system while you're on stage, while you're sweating at the moisture and ended up in, in ER with what sounds like a heart attack as pulled. And, and you're already yeah. on stage too. Yeah. You're already nervous. Your heart rate's already yeah. up. Oh yeah. Everything you know, goes. your adrenaline is already sky high. So you combine all those factors is that's the, that's the place where you're going to, you know, faint and have a stroke. It's that's the place because yeah. you're already nervous as hell. I mean, I, anyone who's been on stage, you know, competing in bodybuilding, doing theater, doing a speech, you know, in college, doing a, a, a speech in front of a bunch of people. I mean, it's nerve wracking. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. So already, so you can imagine yeah. what you went through. So yeah, guys, it's really, really I, cool. I've been on stage, not, not, not as a bodybuilder, Steve, but I've, I've done a lifting exhibition for a, uh, uh, I think EFBB South Coast qualifier. And the guy that was running the competition said, come down, set up your stand for your little company, but I need you to go on stage. And it was definitely the deer in the headlights. You get on stage and I'm just dressed like, you know, sports gear to lift a weight and the lights in your face, it feels like 500 degrees. It's not, but that's your nerves and your adrenaline. There's 500 people watching me lift a dumbbell off the floor. And yeah, and I'm not even in bodybuilding. I'm not ripped. I'm not tired. I'm not <laughs> you screw up. <laughs> Casual. Yeah. What, about, what the hell? I can't see no one. But if you, you try to do the lift, you can't do the lift. You're like, push yeah, yeah. I mean, I, be like... I, I, I made some mistakes because I'd done the damn lift I was supposed to be doing in front of the crowd. I'd done it for guys three times in the daytime, really. I should have saved it for the show in the evening. But I had to now do it when I'm tired. And I'm drinking Coca-Cola, as you said, with caffeine, my heart going, and it's 10 o'clock at night. What the hell? And I'm not even in my underpants covered in baby oil. I'm just like up there in my sports casual or whatever. So, yeah, when you're like that, the guys are hungry. They're carb depleted. They're in condition. It's been said about bodybuilding at its best is when you're actually in the worst kind of physical fitness type shape, being ripped at 3% or less is not healthy. Being on stage, sucking your gut in, holding your muscles for half an hour or an hour in a quote-unquote relaxed position, which is not relaxed, and then posing, and you've made the mistake of slightly overdoing the diuretics, how he could have died. Simply put, he could have died, and he kind of screwed up. 
and, and that's the controversial thing about Paul. He could have died on stage in front of the crowd. The two other guys that died because of directives were not on stage. He ends up being taken off, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, stiff as a plank, carried off by four of the ex exhibition guys, the backstage guys. He could have literally dropped down dead of a heart attack with a full body cramp in front of a crowd of a thousand people. And that would have been probably just about the worst possible thing that could have happened to bodybuilding at the time. And can you imagine the reaction, the response of the media, Steve, if that had happened? So you, you learn, guys, you learn. Don't, don't get someone else to look you up. And if you're in condition, you're in condition. Doing last minute crazy stuff when you, you kind of ill informed anyway as to what was, what was right, what was wrong from his own perspective and from the information that we know about his cycles, et cetera. It's just crazy, crazy dangerous. And it could have been absolutely the worst thing that had ever happened to bodybuilding in the 90s. Uh, dying on stage is just about as bad as it gets. So, yeah. But on the other hand, I said, an absolute freak. An absolute freak. is one of those guys, if you're not, if you're not over, overdone on aesthetics, you go, hell, I'd like to look like that. I'd like to look like that and be strong. Maybe not, you know, lifting the kind of weights. He was more weights, but... What the hell? I'm not going to complain with my 22-inch arms and covered in veins and looking like I'm on growth hormone 24-7 without being that way. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of how he looked, he was an absolute freak. And and there's always going to be a market for freaks in bodybuilding, Steve. There's always going to be... A, he, he was on a couple of front covers. It's not going to sell a lot of magazines, but he still made the covers. So, you know, if you're a fan of bodybuilding, you have the kind of body type that you like. He wasn't as marketable as he could have been but he still made a hell of an impression in terms of how we look. Check him up, guys. Have a look online and see what this guy looked like. He's going to be, damn! Oh, my God. Maybe not your kind of thing, but it'll probably get you to damn two, three reps in the gym. So see how you feel. Steve. All right, guys, we're out of time. This was episode 124, Paul Dillette. Hope you guys enjoyed it. For Steve Smee and the Mobster, we will talk to you guys next week with another, another person. It's going to be a secret. We will, uh, you'll have to wait to find out. Take care, guys. Take care, Mom. See you soon. Ta-da.